today on the Surgical Fiction Podcast, an excerpt from Kevin Doherty's fine political thriller, The Leonardo Gulag. Perfect for fans who love the artistry of Daniel Silva and the passion of Greg Isles. Stalin's Russia, 1950. Brilliant young artist Pasha Kulmanov is arrested and sent without trial to a forced labor camp in the Arctic Gulag. This is a camp like no other. Although conditions are harsh and degrading, the prisoners are not to be worked to death in a coal mine or on a construction project. Their task is to forge the drawings of Leonardo da Vinci. There is a high price to be paid for failing to reach the required standard of perfection particularly as the camp commandant has his own secret agenda. When the executions begin, Pasha realizes that only his artistic talent can protect him. But for how long? Worse horrors are to come. If he survives them, will life still be worth living? The Leonardo Gulag journeys to the sinister heart of Stalin's regime of terror, where paranoia reigns and no one is safe and in which the whims of one man determine the fate of millions. The Leonardo Gulag, by Kevin Doherty, narrated by Edison McDaniels, available at Audible today. And now, Chapter One of The Leonardo Gulag. 1950, Russia. A freezing January night. Snow blows into drifts all around Lobachev Row in the small town north of Moscow. It shrouds the windows of the dom, blocks its doorways, lines the branches of the chestnut and lime trees in the lane. Ice lies thick on the canal. No barges have moved along it for over a month now, though the nearby rail line is kept clear and the occasional goods train still trundles past. At this dead hour, three in the morning, Sensible citizens are fast asleep. There is silence but for the distant creak and clank of a snowplow working through the night. There will be extra wages for the driver and whichever street streeping gang is following the machine. But now there is another sound, drawing closer, that of a vehicle engine. Headlights appear. A militia truck is arriving. Brakes squeal as it skids to a halt, raising flurries of snow. The coarse voices of the militiamen echo in the stairwell of the dom. Their boots stamp and scrape. There is the ring of metal striking metal. Doors are pounded. Names demanded. Some apartments have lately been subdivided. Yet again, and their numbering changed. Behind the doors, sleepy, frightened voices reply. The men move on. Three flights up, a young man is woken by the din. He starts upright on the ancient sofa that doubles as his bed. His name is Pasha Kamenov. He is 20 years old. In the darkness of the room, a shadow flits past. His mother is already awake and on her feet, drawing her shawl about her shoulders and chest. The shawl is black, embroidered with tiny blue cornflowers. Her hair, streaked with gray, tumbles loose over the shawl. Her long winter petticoats and shift trail along the floor, issuing soft sounds with each step. Please, dear Lord. She mumbles. She crosses herself before the holy icon on the wall and kisses the crucifix in Christ's hand, careful as always not to kiss the face of Jesus, since that was what Judas did. Dear Lord Jesus, protect us. Don't let it be us. 
Pasha rubbed sleep from his eyes. Protect us, Mama? Why? Whatever's going on, it's nothing to do with us. We've done nothing wrong. She shakes her head. No need to have done anything wrong, Pashinka. She has faith in Christ, and she trusts the father of the great Soviet people, Joseph Vissarionovich Stalin, whose portrait watches over them from the opposite wall. But she has also lived through the purges. She knows about boots stomping on stairs in the middle of the night and doors being thumped. She knows the sound of rifles being readied. She jumps as a fist pounds the thin door. Calm enough, a voice bellows. There is more pounding, but something harder than a fist this time. Perhaps a rifle butt. Pasha fears that the door will cave in if they keep this up. Pavel Pavlovich Kalmanov, we know you're in there. At the sound of his name, Pasha feels something shift in his stomach, as if a great stone has suddenly descended toward his bowels. He searches hurriedly for his clothes in the darkness. Mama moans, torn between her two saviors, Jesus and Joseph Vissarionovich. Open the door, Mama, Pasha tells her. It's a mistake. We'll straighten it out. Don't worry. The words sound hollow even to him. Mama tugs her shawl tighter and slides back the bolt. She mumbles another prayer she does so, having opted for Christ over Joseph Vissarionovich. The sound of the bolt magnifies like a gunshot in the moment of stillness that has fallen. The door bursts open. By the light of their torches, Pasha can see that there are four of them, gangling boys no older than himself, but made self-important by their uniforms. Their red faces are burning with the cold. Their eyes remind him of the dogs he watches skulking around the meat market. Barren and dull, stupid, but dangerous. Their racket must have woken the whole dom. He supposes this is their way, to tell everybody that something is going on, and they are in charge of it. The stone is pushing harder at his bowels. Maria Kamanova, one of them, a junior sergeant according to his stripes, barks at Mama. You took your time. She dips her head. I apologize, comrade officer. Please excuse the delay. I was asleep. Why are you apologizing, Mama? There's nothing to apologize for. Where is he? I'm here. You're the ones who should apologize. This is our house. You can't just come pushing in here in the middle of the night as if we're criminals. What do you want with me? Torchlight flashes over Mama's shoulder and falls on Pasha. The sergeant pushes past Mama. He has a pistol in one hand and a rifle slung over his shoulder. Pavel Pavlovich Kalmanov, you're to come with us. Get a move on. We'll see who's a criminal. Mama's hands fly to her cheeks. In the torchlight, her eyes shine with tears. Why him? He's done nothing wrong, comrade. Hush, Mama. We'll want your passport, Komanov, and your propiska. Every adult citizen has to have an internal passport. The propiska is the residency permit, also obligatory. As Pasha and everyone else knows, Joseph Vasirionovich likes to keep a beady eye on his beloved masses, likes to know they are snug and all accounted for in the places where they are meant to be, and preferably in those places only, and that those places are not being infiltrated by criminals, foreigners, gypsies, or other wandering subversives. The sagacious comrade general secretary knows best, always has the Soviet people's true interests at heart. 
He knows all about wandering subversives, having been one himself in his time. And look what that led to. Without a passport and the right propiska, a person belongs nowhere and is entitled to nothing. No education, no accommodation, no job. In short, no hope. Only a rest and a turn behind bars. Or worse, much worse, in a gulag. Good reasons to keep the passport and propiska safely close to hand. Pasha digs in the pockets of his long coat, his late father's coat, finds the green passport with the permit pasted inside and passes it to the sergeant. The other militiamen are cramming in now. The tiny room is packed. There is ice everywhere from their boots. It glitters in the torchlight. These men, too, are armed to the teeth. What were they expecting? A nest of counter-revolutionaries? Someone switches on the ceiling light, but there's been no electricity all week. There's only the oil lamp, empty and unlit. A movement catches Pasha's eye. At the edge of the torchlight, old Griboyev, their neighbor whose family shares the kitchen, is peering in, two terrified eyes and a quivering chin thick with stubble. The eyes take in the guns, the uniformed militiamen, and Pasha and Mama. The old man's wife is whispering for him to come away, tugging at his elbow, but Griboyev stays put. This is too good to miss. His four daughters join him in the doorway. Help us, my lord, Mama is murmuring. She crosses herself over and over. Save your breath, Kalmanova, says the sergeant. God isn't in charge. We took over long ago. Pasha glances at Joseph Vissirianovich. Impossible to guess whether he agrees or not. The sergeant produces a typewritten form and shakes its folds open. He squints at Pasha's documents by the light of his torch and compares them with the form. Pasha realizes it is an arrest warrant. The stone descends deeper in his gut. The passport and propiska disappear into the sergeant's pocket. He secures the flap. Wait, I need those, objects Pasha. Give them back. You won't need them for a while. I'm saving you the inconvenience of worrying about their safety. How did you get out of military service? Who did you bribe? Do we look like we can afford bribes? I'm a student. I'm exempt. It says so right there. Other torches are sweeping the room. Someone whistles softly, one long, falling note. The walls are covered with sheets of Pasha's drawings. More are strewn on the floor, over the table, on the windowsill, even among his blankets and bedding. They spill from his portfolio case. Someone chases the Griboyevs away. The only sound are Mama's sniffles and the rustle of sheets of paper being seized and examined. Where do you get all this paper? One of the militiamen is complaining. How does he afford it? Has he even allowed all this? The sergeant pokes among the drawings, using the barrel of his pistol to swivel the pages toward him. Pasha sees the look that comes over the man's face, the same look he sees in the face of everyone who beholds his artistic ability. It is a look that is in old man Grebelyev's glittering eyes when he sidles over from next door to watch Pasha at work. The sergeant raises his gaze from the scattered pages and looks directly at Pasha. Torchlight reflects from the sea of paper. Pasha would like to capture the play of light on the man's face. He will try from memory. He would go within himself and find it once this present confusion is over and the militiamen have gone. For confusion it surely is, and they will go away when they know that. Surely. But the sergeant puts an end to any such hope. He slaps the warrant down on the arm of the sofa. 
sign this? What is it? Acknowledgement of the legal and proper means of your arrest. Says we've done it by the book. Says we didn't intimidate you or beat you. You're coming with us willingly. Says you love the whole experience. Arrest? Cries mama. Now my Pashenka. We're honest citizens here. His father gave his life. He was a hero and a martyr in the Great Patriotic War. This is a terrible mistake. Mama, enough. She tries to rush forward, arms outstretched to embrace Pasha, as if she can wrench him from the jaws of this decision that neither of them understands and has been made in some unknown place by someone that neither of them even knew existed. Her path is blocked. A militiaman holds her back. Come with you where, says Pasha. Militia station. Why? What law have I broken? I have a right to know. So now you're a lawyer? Sign the damn thing. Someone pushes a fountain pen into Pasha's right hand. It is a cheap Soyuz, a type he would never trust. Ink splutters over the warrant. Clumsy bastard, says the militiaman who provided the pen. He seizes Pasha's hand and twists it back, clear of the warrant. The sergeant's pistol chops down hard on the man's arm. The militiaman wails and drops Pasha's hand. More ink splatters from the pen. The sergeant bends down to Pasha. Nobody harmed you. He didn't hurt you. Agreed? Pasha stares at him, baffled. What kind of arrest is this, in which the prisoner's first mocked and manhandled, but is then protected? as if the insults and bullying come naturally, instinctively, but the protection is by order of a higher authority and has to be considered consciously and remembered just in time, as if there will be trouble otherwise. No one harmed me. I love the whole experience. Very good, calm enough. You're learning. All you have to do is cooperate. All you have to do is go to hell. The sergeant chuckles. He takes a corner of blanket and dabs the blobs of ink dry. Pasha transfers the pen to his left hand and signs the warrant. Mama whimpers again. They allow him a visit to the communal toilet in the courtyard before they set off. Two of the militiamen stand guard outside. They make him keep the door open. In the truck, the sergeant rides in the cab beside the driver. Pasha sits in the back surrounded by the other militiamen, including the one with the injured arm. All of them cling to the leather straps hanging from the metal roof. Even so, with every heave of the vehicle as it bounces into potholes camouflaged by snow, they are tossed up and down and from side to side so they can never be still for more than a few seconds at a time. The truck has no heating system. One tiny bulb mounted on the bulkhead is the only source of illumination. It changes the flushed faces of the militiamen to a sickly green, making them pale versions of the truck's paintwork. The journey takes forever. Pasha cannot see out, so never knows where he is. Yet there is a militia station not far from the Dom. A few minutes would have brought them there. He listens to the keening of the wind, the drone of the engine, the rattle of the restraint chains fixed to the metal sidewalls of the truck. The sergeant has spared him the chains, another part of the mystery. To be arrested but not in chains, which is the picture Pasha carries in his mind of arrested prisoners. At his feet lies the bag into which Mama bundled some clothes for him. The bag already had a few sheets of his drawings and several partly filled sketch pads. He grips its top and keeps his gaze fixed on it, because he is wondering now if his instinct was wrong. 
He does not want to look at his captors or meet their gaze. He no longer wants to draw any of this nightmare. He does not want to go to this special place within himself for any part of this. It would be a desecration, as wrong as spitting on Mama's holy icon. He wants to be safely back home, to wake and discover that a nightmare is truly all this episode has been, and to embark on a day as uneventful as yesterday and the days before it. This is all he wants. At last, the drone of the engine begins to fall. He feels the truck slowing. The brakes squeal. The vehicle sways suddenly, turns a tight corner and halts. Its engine continues to run. He hears a tremendous cacophony of noise from outside, sudden piercing squeals, and crashes as of great unoiled doors sliding back and forth, a multitude of voices shouting commands, deafening screeches that are high-pitched but resonant in timber like moving metal plates being pressed against other metal plates with great force. Over everything is the steady roar of what sounds like an enormous furnace, its volume rising and falling in a constant rhythm. He cannot imagine what furnace could be so huge, or where he is that he can hear such a sound. Every now and then arises a terrible shriek that raises the hairs on the back of his neck. It sounds louder each time, closer. It lasts for 10 or 15 seconds then dies, but soon returns. All this tumult booms and reverberates as if occurring in a giant enclosed chamber. The truck moves forward again, stops. The engine shuts down. Its vibration ceases. They have arrived. But wherever they are, it is no militia station. For information on how to post a review of this surgical fiction podcast, check the show notes. Your review is much appreciated. This is Edison McDaniels. You've been listening to a special presentation of surgicalfiction.com. If you have enjoyed this, consider leaving a review and don't hesitate to tell your friends about us and subscribe. Also, remember that I am an audiobook narrator. You can find many of the books I've narrated on Audible, searching under my name, Edison McDaniels. <laughs>